Hi, I'm David Freudberg, the host of Humankind. I actually grew up in public radio. I've been in the field since I was 16. And from the start, I was taught to offer people content that will inform and enlighten. This podcast is dedicated to spreading ideas that speak to the highest part of our listeners rather than the lowest common denominator. If you like what you hear, we're asking for your help please leave us a kind review on iTunes so others can find us. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks. The battle lines harden as opposing sides attempt to gain control of our judiciary. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. decades-long tug-of-war over the U.S. Supreme Court, an unexpected development in February 2016 had the potential to turn the tables. 79-year-old Antonin Scalia, the impassioned right-leaning justice, died in his sleep in Texas while on a quail hunting trip. The presidential election was nearly nine months away, President Barack Obama would now have a chance to appoint a third justice and loosen the conservative grip on the court. Mr. President, the next justice could fundamentally alter the direction of the Supreme Court and have a profound impact on our country. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. So, of course, of course, the American people should have a say in the court's direction. It is the president's constitutional right to nominate a Supreme Court justice, and it is the Senate's constitutional right to act as a check on a president and withhold its consent. What McConnell leaves out is that voters had their say by electing Obama to a four-year term, which would run till the following January. But in an unprecedented act, McConnell declared that no Obama nominee would get a vote in the Senate or even a hearing. We lost a lot as a result of that. Former Georgia Chief Justice Leah Ward Sears. When a vacancy exists, it should be filled. I mean, that's just the way it is. And I just thought that that was an an immoral, gross abuse of power. And that should never happen again. You know, and and it's kind of interesting. You saw Obama try to find uh, the most palatable judge, jurist, he could, that would make Republicans happy. He, Merrick Garden, you know, isn't a liberal firebrand, little older guy, been around forever, in the middle, makes everybody happy. But it, because it was Barack Obama, it was blocked. Garland was chief judge of the powerful U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia and regarded as a moderate liberal who builds consensus with fellow judges. Fidelity to the Constitution and the law has been the cornerstone of my professional life. If the Senate sees fit to confirm me to the position for which I have been nominated today, I promise to continue on that course. But shortly after his remarks at the White House, Garland's hope was extinguished when Senator Mitch McConnell phoned him to say he would not meet with the judge to consider the nomination. One of my proudest moments is when I looked at Barack Obama in the eye and I said, Mr. President, you will not fill this Supreme Court vacancy. 
if you start getting into a situation in which the, the process of appointing judges is so broken. President Barack Obama. So partisan that uh, a eminently qualified jurist cannot even get a hearing, then we are going to see the kinds of sharp partisan polarization that have come to characterize our electoral politics seeping entirely into the judicial system. And uh, the courts will be just an extension of our legislatures. It was terrible. It, it's, it's teared at our democracy. That's not how things are supposed to work. I mean, that's like little banana republics work. And the Republican blockade of Judge Garland inevitably escalated the judicial wars. There's been a steady progression of these. It started out after uh, Bush's election. Carl Hulse, chief Washington correspondent of The New York Times and author of Confirmation Bias. Democrats started filibustering appeals court nominees, uh, which really hadn't been done. Uh, they managed to block some of those. That, that changed uh, things. But the, uh, in 2013, the Republicans were blocking President Obama from getting judges on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, often called the second most influential court in the land. It's important because it decides uh, a lot of political and policy fights in Washington. Republicans were blocking. Uh, there were four vacancies on that court. Republicans were blocking President Obama's nominees. They decided to give him one, hoping that that would satisfy him. But Harry Reid and the Democrats were really miffed about this. And uh, he engineered within the Democratic caucus a rules change. As a result, the Senate minority, at that time Republicans, would thereafter be denied the ability to delay or block judicial nominees. And that cleared the way for President Obama to get his nominees on the court. But Mitch McConnell, the then minority leader, stood on the floor that day and warned Harry Reid and the Democrats that you are going to regret this, and you are going to regret it sooner than you think. And there are now many Democrats who do regret it because that change and a couple other changes, uh, the Republicans after Trump was elected eliminated the 60-vote filibuster th threshold on Supreme Court justices. The term filibuster became popular in the 1850s to describe prolonged speeches as a stall tactic to prevent a vote in the Senate. The filibuster was one of the few rights available to whichever party was in the minority. So the rules changes have really had an impact. They've made it possible for the Trump administration to populate the courts. And uh, people uh, want to know what the Democrats are going to do to counter this. So it's, it's going to be a continuing topic of discussion. Do you think it'll be a tit for tat? It has been so far. Everything uh, that I've covered in my... 30-plus years of watching this as part of my job as a reporter in Washington has been a tit-for-tat. Nobody ever steps back. They always step forward and, and twist it just a little more. So what do you think we may lose as a result of turning up the temperature on this politicization of the judicial nominations? Well, it's dangerous because I just think that people— there's not a lot of confidence in government right now. Uh, and I think if people lose faith in the courts and their ability to 
make impartial, nonpartisan decisions, you're just going to uh, fuel civil unrest. And I think that going forward, what happens then is do people just ignore court decisions? It relies on the other branches of government to listen to them and to comply and to seek enforcement in the states like desegregation. So if you get to the point where people just think that these court rulings are meaningless uh, and we're just going to ignore it, I don't know where that leaves us. I'm sorry to have such a bleak outlook, but it uh, sometimes seems like it's headed in that direction. Senator Lindsey Graham, Republican of South Carolina and current chair of the powerful Senate Judiciary Committee, which puts forward the judges who are appointed to the federal bench. I didn't start this mess. I remember the conversation like it was yesterday. Got a phone call from Senator Schumer saying we're going to change the rules tomorrow for circuit courts. I said, why? We weren't obstructing. Democrats, led by Chuck Schumer of New York, asserted that the GOP was indeed obstructing the process of confirming judges. But at this 2019 committee meeting, Graham lamented that the system had broken down. The politicization of the judiciary, there's no use blaming one group, is real. And after 2013, everything changed. Now, what did we do? We had Gorsuch. We couldn't get 60 votes. We changed the rule for the Supreme Court. What's going to happen? Judges are going to be more ideological because you don't have to reach cross style to get anybody's input. And it's going to have an effect over time on the judiciary that I very much regret. Graham recalled a less quarrelsome time among the hundred members of the United States Senate. Nominees a generation earlier, he said, were evaluated less on their judicial philosophies than on their credentials. The qualifications test seems to have died. And uh, Scalia got, I think, uh, 98 votes, and Ginsburg got 96. Now, they're about as polar opposite as you can be in terms of judicial philosophy, but they turned out to be fast friends. And uh, I don't know what's happened. I mean, I'm, I'm not blaming anybody, but there was a day that a very strong conservative and someone who was very much attached uh, in terms of the liberal judicial philosophy sailed through this body, how can you say Ruth Bader Ginsburg is not qualified? And same for Scalia. Lindsey Graham, whose Senate career has often been sharply partisan, was almost wistful in coming to terms with the political effects of paralysis. That polarization had boiled over five months earlier at the rancorous Supreme Court nomination hearings of Brett Kavanaugh. But the stalemate was long in the making. We are where we are. Nothing's going to change unless we all change together. If we're up to me, we'd have a 60-vote requirement for every judge at every level. Now, what would that mean? That means we'd have to talk to each other, and a lot of people being nominated today probably wouldn't make it. But that ship has sailed. The worst is yet to come. Uh, Let's just be honest with each other. Everybody on our side thinks all of y'all are crazy. Everybody on your side thinks all of us are crazy, particularly after Kavanaugh. I don't think you're all crazy. Well, I know you don't, but it's your people. You don't, but our bases do. Now, let's just be honest with each other. This committee has got a problem. It didn't start with Kavanaugh, but it highlighted the problem. I don't know how to fix it.
We're exploring the impact of political polarization on America's judiciary. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. For more information on this segment, part of our project Judicial Independence, and to obtain audio downloads or CDs, please visit humanmedia.org. During the 2016 presidential election campaign, Donald Trump announced a list of conservative judges he would consider appointing to the federal bench. It further politicized the selection of judges and turned out to be a shrewd maneuver. At the election, exit polls indicated Trump voters were especially motivated by judicial politics. As it happened, his most controversial choice in July 2018 was not a name on the initial list Trump had released. Tonight, it is my honor and privilege to announce that I will nominate Judge Brett Kavanaugh to the United States Supreme Court. Then sitting on the Federal Appeals Court in Washington, D.C., Brett Kavanaugh was an ambitious political climber. He worked on the Ken Starr investigation that led to President Bill Clinton's impeachment in 1998. Kavanaugh later joined the legal team representing George W. Bush in the Florida recount case that decided the 2000 election. But when nominated to the Supreme Court, another part of his history came under the microscope. I believed he was going to rape me. Christine Blasey Ford, a psychology professor at Palo Alto University in California and a researcher at Stanford University School of Medicine. She testified at Kavanaugh's hearing that he had attacked her after drinking at a party when they were in high school. I tried to yell for help. When I did, Brett put his hand over my mouth to stop me from yelling. This is what terrified me the most and has had the most lasting impact on my life. It was hard for me to breathe, and I thought that Brett was accidentally going to kill me. President Trump initially thought Blasey Ford's testimony could be seen as believable, jeopardizing the Kavanaugh nomination. But at a rally, he challenged her credibility, intensifying the political stakes. How did you get home? I don't remember. How'd you get there? I don't remember. Where is the place? I don't remember. How many years ago was it? I don't know. I don't know. The judge had unequivocally denied the allegations, but a former prosecutor serving on the Judiciary Committee, Democratic Senator Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota, questioned Kavanaugh. Drinking is one thing, but the concern is about truthfulness. And in your written testimony, you said sometimes you had too many drinks. Uh, Was there ever a time when you drank so much that you couldn't remember what happened or part of what happened the night before? I, I... No, I remember what happened, and I think you've probably had beers, Senator, and, and so... So I, you're saying there's never been a case where you drank so much that you didn't remember what happened the night before or part of what happened? That's, you're asking about, yeah, blackout. I don't know, have you? Could you answer the question, Judge? I just, so you, that's not happened. Is that your answer? Yeah, and I'm curious if you have. I have no drinking problem, Judge. Nor do I. Okay, thank you. 
The FBI undertook an investigation into Blasey Ford's claims and those of another woman who alleged a separate incident of sexual misconduct by Kavanaugh. The findings neither validated nor disproved the accusations. In a subsequent statement to the committee, Kavanaugh went on the offensive. This whole two-week effort has been a calculated and orchestrated political hit, fueled with apparent pent-up anger about President Trump and the 2016 election, fear that has been unfairly stoked about my judicial record, revenge on behalf of the Clintons, and millions of dollars in money from outside left-wing opposition groups. This is a circus. But for all the fury, it remained possible a judge accused of serious wrongdoing might be seated on the nation's highest court. Judiciary Committee Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey. Millions are watching this body and how we act. Do we rush to a vote? Will we brush aside a credible witness's testimony? Will we belittle and attack credible testimony? Will we ignore credible testimony? Will we listen? Will we believe? In the end, Brett Kavanaugh was confirmed in October 2018 by a two-vote margin in the Senate then promptly sworn in as a justice of the Supreme Court. It was definitely a wrenching incident for the Senate. Carl Hulse of the New York Times. It still has left quite a bit of bad feelings Uh, amongst members of both parties, Democrats. uh, After what happened with Garland, they just thought that they were being steamrolled. Republicans thought this was a horrendous effort by the Democrats to tar a man who uh, they all think highly of. It was uh, very vicious and, you know, it's and certainly has affected Justice Kavanaugh as well. I mean, early on, he was having trouble... Uh, I know going out in Washington, D.C. and, you know, out for dinner would be confronted by folks. And it just shows you the level of uh, toxicity that has infected the judicial confirmation process. And Justice Kavanaugh has since appeared at very few public events, like at law schools, where many new justices are invited to give lectures. Robert Barnes of The Washington Post. I think that the same people who thought that Clarence Thomas would never be seen as legitimate on the court would say that Kavanaugh is not going to be either. Um, The same people who thought uh, that Clarence Thomas didn't tell the truth at his nomination uh, think that Kavanaugh didn't tell the truth at his. Um, It's very early for us to know how that's going to play out. There was a telling event that Justice Kagan was at uh, where young woman in the audience, a law student, said, you know, maybe I shouldn't ask you this, but how does it affect the Supreme Court's uh, reputation that two men accused of sexual harassment now sit on the court? And Justice Kagan's quite tart response was, you're right, you shouldn't have asked me that. Um, I'm a member of this institution, and I'm not going to say anything that would harm it. Uh, And so 
you know, once you're on the court, you're on. And the justices see it in their own best interest uh, and the country's best interest uh, to have the court be viewed as a body with integrity uh, that makes decisions, you know, based on the law. By all accounts, Chief Justice Roberts places a high premium on civility around the famous table where the nine judges hash out and argue their views. The debate over one case, Muhammad Ali's Vietnam-era draft resistance, was dramatized in a 2013 film starring Christopher Plummer and Frank Langella. I think it's time we left politics to Congress, don't you? Please, you're being so naive. Apart from this place, do you have any sense of what goes on in the real world? I know exactly what goes on in the real world. All the more reason to protect the independence of the court. So naive. John, I don't understand why you're doing this. Why? You're just about to retire. Because this court is a continuing body. It acknowledges the Constitution, the problems of the day, and tries to reconcile the two. And by God, I respect that. Please. The vote is tied. Four to four. In real life, deliberations among the Supreme Court justices are entirely confidential and expected to be well-mannered. In their written opinions, the justices can be very tough on each other. But we do manage to agree on lots of things. Justice Sonia Sotomayor speaking at a Princeton University symposium in 2018. And to the extent we can avoid ruling in such expansive ways as to foreclose continued conversation, I think we have a chance of holding on to our legitimacy. As Elena says, though, we're each going to have to think about how to do that and and how to implement and support um, our institutional reputation. Also on stage was Justice Elena Kagan. We live in this, uh, this, this, this world where it's just the nine of us. We are the consummate repeat players. Every case, it's going to be the same nine of us. And if you hold grudges or if you, um, uh, you know, have a bad relationship with one of your colleagues, then in the next case and in the next case and in the next case, you have a lo- uh, not much of a chance of persuading that colleague to come along with what you think is the right thing to do. So, so we all have a kind of vested interest in having good relations with each other, and I think that that's part of what maintains our good behavior. If you look at the history of the Supreme Court, there are some parts of the court's history where people had completely pathological relationships, where, <laughs> they're, they're, where, they, where they wouldn't talk with each other, where one person walked into a room and another person would walk out. Uh, and we are very much not like that. I think we all get along genuinely very well. I think we... We, uh, we, we all believe that everybody is operating in good faith around the table, even if we disagree strongly with them. If you start from the proposition that there is something good in everybody. Justice Sonia Sotomayor. Uh, it's a lot easier to get along with them, even when you disagree vehemently. And so, for me, um, I tell people often who uh, don't know, Justice Clarence Thomas knows every employee in our building. Not only knows their names, but he knows all their family members. 
if someone gets ill, he's the first one to reach out and offer help. Um, he is exceedingly caring. Um, whenever anyone, myself, I can speak for myself, but I know he does it with everybody. If you're ill, if you've had someone die in your family, his is the first flowers that arrive. It's the first call that's made to see if you're okay. Um, he and I, I don't think, have voted together on hardly anything. <laughs> but I know that inside of him, there is a goodness that I can admire. Might disagree with him on everything else. But I think if you can approach people in that way and understand that a difference of opinion doesn't necessarily brand you an evil person, there's more space to talk. There's more space to engage. And certainly more space for willingness to compromise. Listening to Humankind, I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Oliart Rose. Associate producer Mark Kilstein. Editorial assistance from Kathy Graham, Ken Rogers, reporter Sean Johnson of Wisconsin Public Radio, and Jake Kavicki. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Steve Martin, Laura Carlo, David Cruz, and Tony Buck. Our program is presented by Human Media. To download an audio copy of this program and access other resources, please visit humanmedia.org. That's humanmedia.org. You can also access our other programs and send us an email from our website. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. And you can subscribe to our free weekly podcast, Humankind on Public Radio. This segment, part of our project Judicial Independence, is Humankind program number 281. The executive producer is David Freudberg. This is Humankind. To hear more episodes of Humankind, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast player. A new episode each week. The podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. If you want to support the program, please visit humanmedia.org. And at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. Thanks.